Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. What is the destiny of the unrighteous? Christians over the centuries have put forward three major options. One, eternal conscious torment, also called traditionalism. Number two, temporary torment followed by salvation, also called universalism. And three, temporary torment followed by destruction, also called annihilationism. In this lecture, we'll cover the main text supporting the annihilation of the wicked, as well as three logical problems with the traditional view. Here now is Theology Part 7, Annihilationism. Last lecture, we looked at the destiny of the righteous to inherit the kingdom of God on a renewed world. This time, we are going to look at the destiny of the wicked. So it's important for us to begin by understanding, kind of reviewing, what we learned about immortality in our lecture on anthropology, which is really based on Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis 2, 17 tells us that there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that the original consequence that God set up for sin was death. Let that sink in for a minute. I'll read you the verse. Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely be tortured forever and ever. No, Sean, that's not what it says. It says you will surely what? Die. Die. Let me say it again. The original consequence that God set up for sin was death. That's what he originally set up. Then, after our first parents sinned, in Genesis 3.19, we read, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, in Genesis 3.19, the punishment, after they sinned, was that they would return to dust. It doesn't say that they would be tormented forever and ever. It says that they would return to dust. And then in verse 22, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So the consequence of their sin was obviously death, but how did God choose to meet out that punishment. It wasn't to kill them on the spot, which he would have been justified in doing because he said that was the punishment. But God is very merciful, and instead, what he does is he excludes them from the tree of life. And it's the tree of life that if they eat of it, they will live forever. That's what it says there, right? So this is the idea of conditional immortality. Living forever, not dying, is based on something outside of ourselves, namely the tree of life in the garden, and ultimately based on our resurrection in the end. But it's interesting, though, that the tree of life appears in the end of the Bible. It's there again, and people are eating from it. 
So I wonder what kind of stuff is in the tree of life that would make somebody continue to live. That would be speculation. I don't really know. And then in the end, we know from chapter 5, verse 5, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So from the beginning, the punishment of sin was death. Now, when it comes to the question of immortality, only God is immortal. Only God is immortal. Humans are, by nature, mortal. God gives the saved immortality. Okay, so only God is immortal by nature. Humans are mortal by nature. So if humans are going to become immortal, God needs to somehow do something to us to make us immortal. 1 Timothy 1.17 teaches us that God is immortal. You see that? To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Furthermore, in chapter 6, verse 16, we read that God alone possesses immortality. You see that? Verse 15, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. So God alone possesses immortality by nature. God can't, in other words, God can't die. He's just not able, which is good for all of us, that there is a being in the universe that just can't die, period. And so God is immortal by nature, and if he wants humans to be immortal by nature, he has to give it to us. And we get that through the gospel, believing in the gospel, and then ultimately through resurrection. It says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So, Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So, the way God has set it up is through Christ, this, you know, what, what He's accomplished in His life and death and resurrection, through Christ, the gospel is able to give us immortality. In other words, if we believe in the gospel message, if we believe in the kingdom, the cross, and the resurrection, then immortality is available. That immortality is not actually gained until the moment of resurrection. Okay? It, it becomes a promise the moment we believe in the gospel message, a guarantee on God's end, but it's not actualized until we actually get raised from the death. And then we get 1 Corinthians 15.54, where it says, actually, let's, let's do 1 Corinthians 15.52, where it says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on 
the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And that's a quote from Isaiah 25, verse 8, which we read last time. Death is swallowed up in victory. And that's why I think Isaiah 25 is talking about resurrection. I never put that together before now. It's always exciting to learn something new. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, Sean, but what does this have to do with hell? What does this have to do with annihilationism? It has everything to do with it, okay? Because if God's the only one that's immortal by nature, and he's only giving immortality to the saved when they're raised from the dead, after they believe in the gospel, then what about the damned? What about the unrighteous? How do they get immortality? Look, if you're going to be eternally tormented, you have to have immortality. It doesn't work like that. What we see throughout the Bible instead is that the wicked are cut off. Take, for example, the most quoted verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. It reads, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, it's very clear from this verse that I'm sure you've all heard of many times, right? It's very clear from this verse that there are two destinies. One is perish, and the other is eternal life. What does perish mean? Destroyed. You think about perishable food. That's the sort of thing you don't want to send to those who need relief, right? You don't send them perish. You, you don't send somebody who's just been devastated by a hurricane a bunch of bananas. Why? Because by the time they get to them, or by the time they're ready to eat them, they're probably perished. What this is saying is that if you believe, instead of perishing, you'll have eternal life. It doesn't say you'll have eternal torture or eternal life. It says you'll perish or have eternal life. Eternal life is the reward for the righteous. What is eternal life? It's entering into the kingdom of God. What is perishing? It's being destroyed in a fire. I mean, if there is an actual fire that the Bible talks about when we get to the subject of hell, but it's not a fire that keeps you alive, it's a fire that destroys you or causes you to perish. Uh, let's go back to Psalm 37 because there are just a whole bunch of verses there that talk about this. Go ahead and write these down. Psalm 37 verses, are you ready? 2, 9, 10, 20, 22, 27, 28, 34, 36. You got that? <laughs> over and over again, in Psalm 37, we read that the wicked will wither like grass. They will be cut off. They will be no more. They will perish. They will vanish like smoke. They will be cut off. They will pass away. Those are what all those verses say. I'm not going to like read each one individually because I don't want to take too much time with it. But these are the terms the Bible uses to describe the fate of the wicked. If you're cut off from the land, you're not in the land anymore. If, you, if you're passed away, then you're not there anymore. If you are no more. Look at that verse 10. Psalm 37 verse 10. That's a, that's a pretty strong one. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. A couple more verses from the Old Testament on this, and then we'll jump into Matthew. All right. Malachi chapter 4, 
gives us an important uh, couple of verses on this subject. Malachi 4, 1 to 3. You heard the one about the uh, famous Italian prophet, Malachi. That was the joke, so if you didn't get it or laugh, that's not my problem. It's funny. Malachi 4.1 For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. What Malachi 4 tells us is that the wicked are going to be ashes under the soles of your feet. How do you get ashes? You get this fire. You have a fire, right? It says in verse 1 that the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. Stubble is something that burns very rapidly, right? It's like chaff or dry grass. I mean, it just burns right up. And this is a, one of these scary judgment passages in the Old Testament, in the prophets, and we, there are a bunch of them like this that I could show you. But this one is so important because it has the fire there, but then it also explains to you in verse 3 the result of the fire, the result of the fire is not an ongoing punishment, but the extinction of the wicked so that they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And so this fire imagery is something that develops throughout Scripture as we go on and we get into Matthew. So let's look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. This is talking about the fire. This is John the Baptist prophesying about Jesus. And he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I want to talk to you about this term, unquenchable fire, for a moment. Okay? An unquenchable fire is a fire that you can't put out prematurely. Okay? If a fire is, is, is burning, have you ever seen a fire that's just like out of control? What, what fire did you see? Um, my uncle accidentally set our field on fire, and so... Wow. Yeah. Did he get in trouble for that? No. <laughs> so how'd you, how'd you put it out? Oh, we had to call the fire department. And they were able to put Eventually, it out? Eventually, yeah. Wow. They have to, like, dig around it or something? Mm -hmm. Wow. Has anyone ever lit a Christmas tree on fire? Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about when it's in your house. I'm talking about <laughs> after it's dried out and it's out in the backyard. You've done that. What, did, what was it like? Stood it up. And you stood it up? Let it dry out for like three or four months. Three or four months, okay. Well, what was it like? Really big and cool. When I, when I was dating my wife, I borrowed my dad's pickup truck and my girlfriend and I, we went around town after, must have been after New Year's or something like that, maybe late, early early January, and everyone's putting out their Christmas trees out in the front yard. I guess they were getting picked up or something uh, by the garbage department. And uh, we picked up, we must have gotten like six of them. And we went to her apartment and her apartment was like a second story, but the, it, the, 
the backyard was just a huge open field, so there wasn't, there weren't a lot of people around. And we figured we'd start with just like two, and we lit them on fire, I don't know, 20 feet away from the house. We thought it was a good distance. And those, I don't know, pine trees, for whatever reason, if they're dried out and you light them, it's just like, <laughs> and it's just a whoosh of fire. And it shoots way up, that, like the fire, I'm not talking about the smoke, but the fire shoots feet into the air, maybe six feet, 10 feet, 20 feet into the air. And it generates an insane amount of heat. Just all of a sudden, <laughs> you feel like your eyebrows are gonna singe. And we were afraid about the siding on the house that it would melt. And, and, and you could touch the siding on the house and it was hot to the touch. Don't ever light a Christmas tree on fire next to a house. Go away from the house if you're gonna do it and make sure there's not a tree above you either because that could light on fire as well, right? And in the midst of that, you know, and it doesn't, ha it doesn't burn that long either. It's just like all at once and then it's kind of done. But in the midst of that intensity of fire, it's unquenchable. I mean, you could put something on it, but you would just, that thing, whatever it is, would just burn up too. I mean, maybe there's some chemical that fire departments could put on it that would put it out. But generally speaking, it's unquenchable. There's that moment of intense heat where it's unquenchable. How much more like a grease fire or gasoline if it's on fire? If you just, if you just light gas on fire, it's just like, <laughs> it's really hard to put that out. What puts a Christmas tree fire out or a gasoline fire out or a grease fire out? If it consumes its fuel, then it just goes out. And so it is with the fire in the last day. It's an unquenchable fire in the sense that once it's lit, nobody's putting it out. But once it consumes its fuel, then it will go out. And so that's how I understand this whole business with unquenchable fire. But there is a fire and you don't want to mess with that. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to what? Destruction, that's right. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to what? Life. And those who find it are few. So once again, the options are life or destruction, according to Jesus. Now let's get into some terminology. Let's do some vocab. There are a couple of important words that you need to know about. One of them is Sheol, another is Hades, and then the third is Gehenna. Any meaningful discussion, biblical discussion, on the subject of hell needs to do business with all three of these words. Sheol comes from Hebrew, Hades and Gehenna come from Greek. Sheol we find in the Old Testament, Hades and Gehenna we find in the New Testament. Now, older translations and different translations render these words in different ways. However, it has become standard practice in modern English translations to not translate the word Sheol into English, to just leave it Hebrew, which is weird in my opinion. So like, say for example, the ESV, if I look up the word Sheol, I get 65 references to the word Sheol in the Bible. The first of which is Genesis 37, 35. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, 
I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. This is Jacob talking about his son Joseph. You remember that? Where he, he, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, told their father that his brother died. Their brother died. That Joseph was dead. And so their father said, oh, I won't be comforted. All the, all the sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. I won't be comforted. I will go down to Sheol to my son. Now, where does he think his son is? In a torturous burning fire? No, he just thinks his son is dead. <laughs> and so Sheol is the realm of the dead. In fact, both of these words just mean the realm of the dead or gravedom. It's kind of like an old English word that, you know, it's, it's a, Sheol is a poetic way of talking about where dead people are, okay? Typically it's under the earth because that's where we bury dead people, <laughs> right? So Sheol and Hades is just simply the realm of the dead or gravedom, and that's how it's used throughout the Bible. Now, some people are nervous about that or they, they are uncomfortable with it, so the translators won't just translate it, the grave. Instead, they want to leave it as Sheol to make room for people who have different ideas about it. Let me see if I can get you a quick Hebrew definition of Sheol here. Yeah, there it is. Okay, yeah. Uh, you probably can't read that. It's super small. But see on the right side there, there's a definition. Luke can probably read it, or Jenna can. Can you see that? It says, Sheol, this is, how you, this is how you say it in Hebrew. It's Sheol, actually. But um, Sheol, underworld, abode of the dead. It's like the place where the dead people are. All right, so what I'm saying to you is, it's a perfectly good Hebrew word, and they know what it is, but they don't want to translate it, which makes me think something funny is going on, right? And that is that most Christians today affirm the doctrine of ECT, eternal conscious torment, and if you translate Sheol, the grave, it's going to put a serious hole in that ship, causing it to sink. So they do what they do. I'm not here to judge translators. It's hard work translating. Uh, on Hades, you'll see that in the New Testament, it's used just the same way. Let me pull up a reference for you so you have it in your notes. Okay, this is Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty-three, And Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Heaven is the sky. It's the realm above. And so what's Hades? It's the realm below. It's the place of the dead people. And Jesus uses it like that, and, and so do other people. Uh, let's see if there's another good reference here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it just means the grave. We'll, we'll get to some of these other references in a minute here. It's funny, though, that Gehenna, they never leave Gehenna as it is. They always translate it hell or hellfire, hell of fire. <laughs> That's funny. All right, but anyhow, let's go to Matthew 10, 28 here. That's the, the verse I want to use for Gehenna. This, has anybody ever done any study on, of Gehenna? You, you probably have Madison, right? A little bit. What do, you, what do you know about that word? It is used as like a burning trash heap outside of the city. Yeah. So historically, that's what... There was actually a place in Jerusalem the Valley of Hinnom. So Jerusalem's on a hill, 
and there are valleys around it because if you're on a hill, you're going to have valleys around. The Valley of Hinnom was the city dump where they would put garbage and dead animals and just like whatever stuff. And there was fire there that was just always consuming it. And so this is something that ended up becoming a symbol of the fiery judgment to come, especially in the time of Jesus. But it's interesting what Jesus says in Matthew 20, 10, 28, because he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. That word right there is Gehenna. You can see that if you uh, squint a little bit. But uh, Jesus says that Gehenna, hell, is a place where your soul and your body are destroyed. The traditional view of hell is that your body is destroyed, but your soul is tortured forever in a fire. Jesus says that God can destroy both soul and body in hell. So that's really important. The, uh, there's a long history behind this word Gehenna, and the, what, what it means is Gehenam, which is the Valley of Hinnom in Hebrew. In this very place, in the Old Testament times, in the time of Jeremiah, ancient Israelites, believe it or not, used to sacrifice their children and burn them alive to the god Moloch. So this place has a long history of just absolute disgusting, abominable evil associated with it, where people have burned their children there, then it later became basically the trash heap where stuff was burned. I mean, it was just a nasty place, perfect to use for the ultimate judgment of God, right? Then we have the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. We should talk about that. Matthew 13, verse 40 says that the, in the last day, God is going to send forth His angels, and it says that the tares are gathered up and burned with fire at the end of the age. I know we're just kind of like jumping into the middle of a parable here, but my, my point here is verse 42, where it says, in the last time, the sun will send forth his angels, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, a lot of times people have thought that weeping and gnashing of teeth is an expression of torment, of agony, of pain, of suffering. But it's not. Gnashing of teeth is an expression of anger. It's not pain and suffering, it's anger. You're mad about what's happening to you. So, for example, in the time when they were killing Stephen, you remember the Apostle Stephen? Some of you are probably familiar with him. Book of Acts, chapter 7. It says they gnashed their teeth at him. Why did they do that? Because they were in pain? No, they were throwing stones at him. <laughs> he was in pain. But they were just really furious. They were so furious that they killed. They didn't try. They did kill him. They succeeded in killing him because they were so angry at him. Another example is Luke 13, 28, where Jesus says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. Why are they gnashing their teeth? Because they're so mad and furious that they're excluded from the kingdom, even though... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there, and that's what they have always wanted, is to enjoy the age to come with these patriarchs. Now, they're furious on that day because 
they're being excluded from it. There's no mention of physical suffering and torture. I mean, look, there is going to be physical suffering and torture. If you get thrown into a fire, it's going to hurt, right? But it's not an ongoing process. Another important verse for us to consider is Matthew 25, 46. Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats. And he says about the goats that these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So you have eternal punishment and eternal life. Eternal punishment can mean two different things. One is it can mean punishment that you experience forever. Or it could mean a punishment that lasts forever. Okay? So it could, it could either be talking about the experience or the result. One of those two. So if I say, oh, you're going to have eternal punishment, I could be talking about that you're going to experience a punishment constantly for, forever or that the result of that punishment is going to be forever. In other words, when it says these will go into eternal punishment, he's already made clear in other places that this is talking about Gehenna. This is talking about the ultimate fire. And what happens is they are executed in that fire and that punishment is eternal. In other words, there's no coming back from that. There's no, it lasts forever. There's no like, oh, well, after a thousand years, we'll try something else. No, it's done. Other people interpret it as punishment that you experience forever. But my problem with that, well, I'll get to my problem with that in a minute here, but we've seen scripture after scripture after scripture, not the least of which is John 3.16, that tells us that the two options are either eternal life or perishing. And if you perish, you're not still getting eternal life. Look, if God keeps people alive forever in a fire, he has to give them eternal life. But if eternal life is the reward for the righteous, then why are the wicked getting it too? It doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to go with the second understanding of eternal punishment here that looks at punishment as a result that lasts forever, as opposed to an experience that lasts forever. And there are, there are other verses that lend credence to this way of thinking about it. For example, in Hebrews 5.9, it, it talks about eternal salvation. And that's not to say that the process of being saved or the experience of getting saved lasts forever. It means that after you've been saved, it lasts forever. Or eternal redemption in Hebrews 9.12. Once again, the process of redeeming somebody is finite, but the outcome lasts forever. So this is, this is a way that we see Scripture talking about eternal things in other places as well. Now I want to go and look at you with one, two three main reasons. I want to look at with you three reasons to believe in annihilationism, apart from what we've already seen here. Three reasons why the traditionalist or eternal conscious torment position um, has, has some problems. The first reason relates to atonement. The second one is the character of God. And the third is proportional justice. The first one was atonement. Second one was God's character. And then the third is proportional justice. Or that's also the concept of equity in general.
or justice in general. When it comes to atonement, I've got a few verses for you on this subject. We'll take a look at them. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. You got that? It doesn't say that Christ was tortured endlessly for the ungodly. It says that he died for the ungodly. And I've got plenty of other verses that go along with that, where it talks about how Christ died for our sins in 1 Corinthians 15.3 or 1 Peter 3.18, that Christ suffered once for sins, having been put to death in the flesh. Now look, if the penalty for sin is eternal torture, then Christ did not pay the penalty for sin. Do you follow me? Because it says, according to Romans 5, 6, and many other verses, that Christ died for our sins. It doesn't say that Christ was eternally tortured for our sins. So eternal torture can't be the consequence or the punishment for sin. If Jesus bore the punishment for our sins and the, and the punishment for sin is eternal torture, then Jesus would need to have been eternally tortured in order to pay the penalty for our sins. However, if the penalty for our sins is death, Jesus died. So then he did pay the penalty for our sins. All right, number two, the character of God. What does it say about God that, I mean, this is, some people don't like this line of reasoning, and I understand why, but I don't really see a way out of it, to be honest with you. I mean, what does it say about God that he has to torture people forever in a fire? I mean, think about that for a minute. Intelligent beings forever in unending agony. Let's say you're in a burning fire, awake, suffering, and let's say you've been there for 10 years. That would be a long time, right? 10 years, every day, every hour, every minute, every second, in ah, burning agony. 10 years, that'd be a long time. And you get to the end of 10 years and you think to yourself, how much more do I have to go? And the answer is infinity. You have accomplished nothing with your 10 years. You've got another 10 years, and then another 100, and then another 1,000, and then a million. And when you get to the end of that million years, you're no closer to being done. Can you imagine? I mean, it's really the worst horror you could possibly imagine is unending agony forever. You get to the end of a billion years, and you think, all right, finally, I'm done. No, you haven't even started, literally. I mean, you started, but you, you're no closer to the end than when you first started. What kind of a God sets up the universe so that the majority of people who live end up in this condition forever? It, it just goes against the descriptions of gods we see in the Bible, right? What do we see in the Bible about God? God is love. You look at the attributes of God. We'll look at them in the next lecture. God is compassionate and gracious and abundant in steadfast love, maintaining steadfast love, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet does not leave the guilty unpunished. So he's, he is a God of justice. But... Agonizing shrieks of pain and unending torture? I don't know. It just doesn't seem like the God of the Bible to me. And I'm not trying to, to be all soft on you. I mean, if the Bible said 
God was going to torture people forever in hell. We'd have to accept that because of what we talked about in our second time together, as far as our belief that the Bible is inspired, that the Bible is authoritative. If the Bible is authoritative, then if we disagree with it, we submit, <laughs> not the other way around. But it doesn't say that. So that I don't think we need to believe in that. Uh, what it talks about instead is this uh, Gehenna idea of a fire to come that consumes what is put into it so that the wicked become ashes underneath the feet of the righteous. And then number three major objection against the idea of eternal conscious torment and in favor of annihilation, extinction, destruction, is the concept of proportional justice. Now justice, a lot of times when you see like a picture of justice, they show you two balances. You know what I'm talking about? Where you have like this fulcrum in the middle and then you have the little chains that go down to these like plates. You know that image of justice, right? Like law courts will have like pictures of this. The idea of justice is that whatever you put over here has to be, whatever is over here has to be equal to what's over there. It's the idea of equity, all right? Now let's say for a moment that someone has committed horrible sins, just awful sins for 50 years of their life, and then they died. Now, what would be equitable? What would be just in that situation? To be, to, be, to be just, if you wanted to torture somebody, how much would you torture them to make up for that? Would it be less than 50 years? Would it be more than 50 years? Would it be 50 years exactly? I don't know. I mean, it depends on how you would think it through. But I can tell you this. If you torture somebody for a thousand years and they only lived 50 years, you have gone way beyond proportional justice. You have just doled out an, an excessive amount of punishment that far outstrips what they ever did. But here's the thing, like I said to you before, even after you get to a thousand years, you're still no closer to paying off your debt or to paying your dues. It's forever. So as in, it, God loves justice. We know that from the Bible. There's a verse in Proverbs 11.1 1, that says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. God loves justice. I mean, there's a thousand verses like this in the Bible that talk about how God loves justice. And the, a common thing that, they, that ancient people could do to rip each other off was they would fix the scales that they used in the marketplace so that it, it wasn't just. And one side was you could put more on it and pay less. Or another trick they would do is they would have an unjust ephah. Ephah was a basket they used to measure grain. And you know maybe if you make your basket, you know shape kind of like our um, our cups that we right like if you go to a restaurant you get a cup it's real big on the top and real small on the bottom that's tricking you I don't know if you noticed that and then what else do we do we fill it with ice so then you have this huge glass and it's got this huge uh, rim on the top and you're like oh look at all look at all this soda I got or look at all this drink that I have, whatever you, you drink, sweet tea or whatever down here, you think you have so much, and you take like three sips and it's gone. You're like, what happened? Well, the bottom was small and it's full of ice, right? It's an unjust situation. And you know, restaurants know what they're doing. That's what was happening in ancient Israel. And God says he hates that. That's an abomination to him. What he wants is for it to be fair. 
I'm not saying God hates our glasses. That's, uh, don't, don't, take, don't quote me on that, okay? But I was just using that as an analogy to talk about this. You know, if you have a basket that is wider on the top than it is on the bottom, on the inside, but on the outside it looks exactly flat, exactly even, that would be an unjust ephah. And God says he hates that. He hates it when people rip each other off. And so in the end, how ironic would it be if ultimately God is ripping everyone off by dominating us for millions and billions and trillions of years in eternal conscious torment. So in the end, what the Bible is telling us is that there is a final judgment involving fire, and it's serious, and you don't want to mess with it because it will burn people. And yeah, will there be suffering? Yeah, I think, I think you, people that face that fire will definitely suffer. So there is a literal hell doesn't exist now it will exist on the day of judgment but that literal hell or that lake of fire consumes what is put into it such that the end result is the second death as opposed to a second life that goes on forever okay does that make any sense at all look if you want to get more into this topic there's an excellent website it's called rethinkinghell.com let me show you here that's what it looks like rethinkinghell.com and there are actually three major views on the doctrine of hell one is called universalism traditionalism and conditionalism <laughs> and so universalism is the idea that eventually everyone gets saved so you go through a period of refinement and then eventually after you burn for a while however long that is, I don't know, you get restored and you get saved. That's the universalist idea. There are not very many Christian universalists. There are some, but there are some really difficult verses for universalism. The most common interpretation that Christians have today is called traditionalism, which is just like the idea that Christians traditionally have, except for if you look into the early Christian history, the first couple of centuries, uh, it's not so traditional then. <laughs> But uh, over the last thousand years or so, definitely a traditional position is that suffering is permanent. And then the last point of view, which is also called annihilationism, see right there, is called conditionalism. And that is the idea that the fire of hell does cause suffering, but it leads to destruction. It leads to permanent destruction. And when that happens, the wicked are no more. Now, some conditionalists, some annihilationists believe that people will be tormented in the fire in proportion to how many sins they've committed. Right? So some, somebody might get a one-year sentence in the fire. Other people might get a 10-year sentence. Other people might be a month or whatever. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that. It's just speculation. It could be true or it could not be true. I could tell you this that however long that might go on, whether it's a split second or a month or whatever, the end result is still going to be death, not eternal life in a fire. Okay? So I think there is some flexibility on that. Rethinking Hell is an excellent, excellent website. They've got a ton of verses over here under Explore. And they also have some sweet debates where somebody who believes in annihilationism will debate somebody who believes in traditional hell 
and you'll be able to hear the best arguments from both sides. I'd recommend any debates with Chris Date. Chris Date is a master debater. Um, but under this Explorer, you've got, most importantly, you've got this list of scriptures. They also have a podcast, so check that out if you're interested. Uh, if you want to write your paper on hell, I would definitely use Rethinking Hell as a, a resource, as well as anything written by Edward Fudge. He's really been a powerhouse on this subject over the last, I don't know, 30 years or so. He's very old now. Um, and he's got a book called The Fire That Consumes, as well as a book called a Final, Hell, A Final Word is his most recent book. And uh, there's also a movie about his life called Hell and Mr. Fudge, which is, it's all about him discovering that hell is not eternal torment when he was a young scholar and how he got in so much trouble from other Christians for changing his belief on that subject. There you have it. Well, that's it for this lecture. Check out the show notes for a detailed outline on this subject. Also, check out RethinkingHell.com for lots of resources, as well as podcast number 10, in which I feature a debate between Chris Date and Phil Fernandez on the subject of hell. You can access other episodes in this theology class on restitutio.org or in your podcast feed. And just before closing out, I wanted to read out a couple of quick comments from previous posts on Restitutio. On Theology Part 6, previous episode, Challenging the Kingdom, Derek Collins writes, Hi, Sean. I am aware that most scholars today view the verses in Luke 11 and 17 as saying that the kingdom is present, inaugurated, in some sense. But I believe they have been taken out of context. It's too much to type here at this moment, but I have some resources that I believe you would be interested in that challenge what has become the predominant view. All right, Derek, well, um, all ears, be interested to hear what you have to say about that. This, of course, is the text where Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your midst, which I'm inclined to take as representational, that Jesus is, quote-unquote, the kingdom, because Jesus is the Messiah, the king of the kingdom, and so, in a sense, the kingdom is right there in their midst. They're looking at the kingdom, so to speak, because Jesus is the king, and he represents as the kingdom's quintessential ambassador. Also, Inyina Nikom Abonta writes in on the post where I quoted Michael Heiser on the kingdom. I hope I said your name correctly. I have a question rather than a comment. It says, The saints will rule the earth under Christ, having power over nations as well as angels. What earthlings will they be ruling? I'd imagine not over themselves, would they be ruling over unbelievers who somehow survive the second coming of the Son? Well, and you know, this is an interesting question, and it does certainly come up from time to time. Uh, first of all, I would say, even if there are no unbelievers around, and it was just the saints living on earth, uh, we could rule the kingdom. And it's not necessarily who we're ruling over, so much as it is who is making the decisions, who is in charge. And if God and God's people are making decisions and administering justice and figuring out how to run the world, then I would say that is ruling the world. You don't necessarily need to have some other class to be over. Although I do personally believe that when Jesus returns, there's not going to be an annihilation of all 
unbelievers, but that there is going to be a transitionary period in the scriptures called the millennium. Some people take that literally. Some people take it figuratively. That doesn't really matter to me as much as just recognizing the reality that there is a transitionary period between when Christ comes and when God comes. And that is clearly spelled out in Revelation chapter 20 and chapter 21. So I do believe there will be unbelievers that survive the coming of Christ and the wrath of God that precedes that. And I, I, think, we'll, I think we will rule over them, but then there is that final rebellion and the final throne of judgment, after which there will only be believers, but it's still a kingdom. And we will still have positions of responsibility, and things will still need to be, to some degree, organized and to be able to get done. So um, that is how I am thinking about it. If any of you have an opinion on that subject, check out the post called Michael Heiser on the Kingdom. Excellent uh, quotation from uh, that scholar on the subject. And add your voice to the mix. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.